Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Wen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good morning, Guy. Morning, Hui. And Brian Schmidt. Morning, gentlemen. Morning. So remember, this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. Right now, we have one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this wonderful podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife and stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on or not going on in our shops. So let's get right into it. Hui, you've got the first question. All right. This question is from Peter Downing. Hey, guys. I've sent in questions before and always got great responses, but I have a strange one for you this time. I'm a teacher and a bit of an eclectic one. I like to keep my kids on their toes wondering about me. <laughs> That's a weird thing to have them. I, I'd, I'd wonder if whatever subject you're teaching, I'd hope that they wonder more about that than wonder about you. Uh, I've always wanted to take to make a throne to keep in the room for me to lecture from or to let the kids sit on. I teach high school, so the kids are almost full human sized, mostly, and, and never careful. So well built is a necessity. Again, I'm a teacher, so budget friendly design is also a consideration. I have some recycled three three inch square cedar posts and other scraps, uh, but I definitely can't afford to go the route of four inch thick white oak or walnut. I'm also a leather worker, so incorporating leather seats or whatnot is within my skills. Not afraid of carvings or painting for details. I've done some looking for inspiration and it just doesn't seem folks are building thrones all that often. They're not. Um, the only chair I've ever built is an Adirondack from Plans. Any ideas, thoughts, recommendations, resources, donations, I'd especially like to at least start with dimensions to keep in mind. Thanks, Peter, at Mr. Downing Woodworking on Instagram. Okay, so this is an interesting question. And I took this because I've actually done some like set work, set design for my wife's ballet studio. And also we part of a church and we do like different sets and whatnot for the backgrounds for different themes, you know, uh, vacation Bible school, those types of things. So what I've always found to work really well is to use very simple two by four, two by six material that's cut up uh, to create. In this case, if you're building a throne, just basically the the main structure of the throne and then cladding it with some form of plywood. And especially since you you talked about here that you do some leather work, my guess is that you also will probably have some resources where you could do some uh, upholstery type work too. So that's going to be cushioning and stapling and whatnot. I, I would not go all out on this. And like you said, uh, using expensive materials, I would just use what you have available. And also something that because you're at a high school, might get the kids involved and engaged in some ways. The fact that you probably have a band or theater group, I'm imagining, in your high school, and you could probably get those kids involved a little bit too. It could be maybe a, a project both for your classroom, but also for the for the theater if they're putting on any shows or whatnot. Uh, I would also recommend putting this on foldable casters. So casters that are on a hinge can fold underneath and that you can transport it. And in that way, it could also be used for the theater. Again, these are just my thoughts that I'm kind of putting out there for you to do or for you to consider. Uh, 
again, I would not do anything, no complex joinery. I'd probably go nails, screws, and uh, two by fours cladded with uh, some thin plywood, and then maybe uh, add some upholstery or whatnot with, uh, with staples and foam, and just keep it pretty simple in that sense. Uh, Guy, what are your thoughts on this? I don't know if I have any thoughts on this. It's, it's so far out of my wheelhouse. Um, the only thing I can think of is, you know, I, I, as far as inspiration goes, there's plenty of, uh, I'm assuming, there's plenty of pictures of thrones on the internet. They're not what you usually see in movies. They're pretty straight up and down chairs. Yeah. Um, there's nothing really crazy about most of them. They're just ornate more than anything else. So, I do like the idea of just making it out of uh, construction grade material. I'd recommend Doug fir, not just regular two by fours, but make sure you get the Doug fir ones. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I really don't really have anything to say about this. Um, I would just build a simple structure, uh, make it big enough so it can get through a doorway. Mm-hmm. And uh, there you go. What about you, Brian? Any thoughts? So, Peter, I read your question and immediately thought of the Game of Thrones throne. It's like, oh, this guy's got to get a lathe and like start spinning up a whole bunch of <laughs> sword-like <laughs> things to go into it. But for, I guess for a high school class, maybe not the best. Uh, maybe not the best design. You mentioned, Peter, that you're a bit of an eclectic teacher, and I wonder if there's a way to incorporate that eclecticness uh, into your design. And, you know, whatever, whatever that means for you, um, finding ways to incorporate either unique or different materials or design elements into it to really make it your, your throne. Um, everything these guys have said is, is spot on. I don't, I don't have anything to add there, but I'm just picturing, you know, if you're a, you know, a math teacher, finding a way to, to, you know, coat an old math textbook in epoxy and then find a way to work that into, you know, <laughs> underneath the seat or something like that to where, you know, it, it's clearly not intended to be, you know, a piece of fine furniture. It's, it's fun and it's, you know, using the resources at hand. Uh, yeah. And, and that would be the other thing, not worrying too much about all consistent material, um, you know, throw a bunch of different species at it. You know, if you're eclectic, let the let the chair, you know, have a lot of different design elements and species and everything like that all coming together as well. So, right on, right on. I think well, it's all right. I think it's a cool idea. It is. It is. It, it, probably probably be the talk of the school, at least for a year. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's uh, it's to you, Brian. Is that right? Yep. All right. And this question is from. John Sebecki and John says, uh, first off, really enjoy the podcast. I'm a hobbyist woodworker who like, who loves to build custom cornhole boards. I have built some simple furniture, like a coffee table using custom metal legs. I would like to make some simple wooden boxes for my adult daughters. I'm thinking about trying box joints for my first attempt. I have most of what I need to do this project, but I don't own any chisels to clean up my work. Can you suggest a brand or set that would be affordable, yet good quality, that could last for future projects? Also, how easy is it to maintain the edges? Should I plan on sharpening them myself or send them out to a pro? There's got a lot of different 
thoughts on this, John. Um, so I'll, I'll offer one before turning it over to Guy and we, and that would be that I recommend sharpening them yourself. Um, and it kind of goes to that, that old maxim, you teach a man to fish, he'll eat forever or something like that. And learning the, the skill of sharpening is something that will serve you throughout your entire woodworking career. Um, so as far as your question, should, should you sharpen them yourself or send them out to a pro? Um, I would learn to do it yourself. I, I was really intimidated by that and, and still am. A, I'm not intimidated. I'm just not quite great at it yet. Um, but with the right stones and the right guide, um, honing guide, you'll be able to, to get it down in no time. And there's lots of good tutorials online about how to go about doing that, as well as a lot of different methods. Um, there's no no one right way to sharpen a chisel or a plain iron. So I recommend sharpening them yourself. Guy, what do you think? Well, I, I agree with you that there's no right way, but there's a lot of wrong ways. <laughs> so Fair. keep that in mind. Um, yeah, as far as brand goes, the one of the, the, the sets of chisels, I, I've own, I own two sets of chisels. One are Stanley Sweethearts. And those are very, very good, very inexpensive for what they are, chisels. Uh, I'd recommend buying them one at a time for the different projects that you need in the sizes. Sure. As far as like a good, inexpensive starter set goes, I also have a set of Narex chisels, which are excellent chisels for the money. I think they're made in the Czech Republic. Um, and they're very inexpensive. Well, they, they were when I bought them 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're probably more expensive now. Um, but yeah, as far as sharpening goes, there's 8 million different ways to sharpen a chisel. Um, there's honing guides available. Uh, as far as a honing guide, I'd probably recommend the, the, the Veritas one that Lee Valley sells. Um, I think it's like a Mark II or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's a really good um, honing guide to get you started, and not terribly expensive either. And it's not terribly expensive. Yeah. And I, I just just watched some videos uh, from experts. That's there's the key. Watch the videos from the experts that mm -hmm. are good at, at, at sharpening chisels. Um, uh, what, what do you think, we? Yeah, I'm right there with you. So I have the Stanley Sweethearts. I, I used to have a pair of Narex. I don't have them anymore because I, when I got the Stanley Sweethearts, I, I gave the um, the Narex to uh, a makerspace. I donated them. Uh, the only thing that I, the only qualms I had about the Narex chisels were the handles were a little bit yeah. big. They're, the they're, they are, yeah, they're big handles. The Sweethearts are a little bit smaller, so they're kind of easier to maneuver with uh, while pairing. Uh, but both are excellent starter sets if you want to get the set. I, I I completely agree with Guy. Get the individual ones for when you need them because you end up having a whole bunch of chisels that you end up not really using all that much. I think I use like three, three-eighths, half-inch, and like three-quarter-inch or like the three main main ones that I use. Uh, but, but get the ones that you need and absolutely 100% figure out how to... Uh, hone those uh, chisels yourself, sharpen them yourself. It's really not that hard. And, and 
uh, one of the best tips that I think I ever received was actually from Paul uh, is uh, Chris Shores. He says there are so many different ways to sharpen. Figure out one way that you want to master first. Stick with that for at least a couple of years. And then if for whatever reason you find that you're just not getting uh, a sharp enough edge that you would like, go to a different methodology and try that. Uh, trying all of them and getting all the equipment, everything that you need to, to sharpen all these, uh, uh, to sharpen your chisels and all these different methods. It, it can be a little bit daunting and you end up really not really getting good at any particular method of sharpening. So just stick with one and, and try that out. Yeah. What, um, for, a, for a box, for a small box or some sort of a uh, wooden box that is going to use box joints, do you see John needing chisels to do that? Um, Depends on how it cuts the box joints. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I guess for me, I'm, I would be typically cutting them on the table, table saw, saw yeah. or, or using the router table would be a secondary. So I, I don't necessarily see why he would need chisels. Yeah. So, um, but he should have a pair. He should have a couple of chisels anyway. Yeah, uh, I, I, I would. I would always start with a half inch chisel. It's a, it's a good as starting a, point. That's the recommendation. That's, for that's, that. that's the one that I use ninety percent of the time. Seventy-five. Yeah, I was gonna say seventy-five percent of the time. Yeah, half inch. I think I've got a quarter, or maybe it's three sixteenths, and then. Uh, so you can see there's seven eighths or in, or full inch. I don't know. They're in millimeters and I don't know what the conversion is off the top of my head. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you have a, a set of Narex. Is that right? I have the Narex premium chisels. They've got a, kind of a darker wood handle to them. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I try to subscribe to the buy once, cry once philosophy and buy the best tool you can as quickly as you can. Chisels might be the exception to that because you can ruin it. You know, if you sharpen it incorrectly or if you, I think that chisels are one where it is worth starting on a less expensive um, set and the Narex are, like you guys both said, are a good entry level. So Yeah, for sure. For yeah, sure. Well, one, one thing that Brian brought up that I, I should definitely talk about too is the Narex are metric. Yep. Um, so like the 12 millimeter is closest to half, half inch, yep. but it's not a half inch. Right. Right. 10 right. millimeters closer to three eighths of an inch, but it's mm -hmm. not three eighths of an inch. Yeah. And that's the thing you have to remember with it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and Narex is really up their game, man. They've, they've got like a whole, I remember when I was first looking at Narex, they only had like two lines. They just had like the premium and then the, like the, regular the, ones. the regular ones. Yeah. But now they've got like, all different types, man. They got, man, I'm looking at this court anyway. All right. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, moving on. So I'll take the next question. And this is from Mike Gitberg. And Mike says, I'm having problems when I glue up frame and panels for doors on cabinets and keeping the frame flat. You're, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. This problem is exacerbated when there are two doors and they are both not flat. My joinery is square. The styles and rails and panel are all square and flat. So I know that's not my problem. I, I'm guessing 
that it's the way I'm clamping it during glue up. I would appreciate any thought on what I might be doing wrong or tips and techniques you use when gluing up panels. Thanks for your help and keep up the great work, Mike. So this is a, here's the thing with door panels. They have to be, you can have, as Mike says, everything is, is square and straight and then you glue it up and it dries and you set it down and it's either warped or cupped or a, a style is twisted um, in relationship to the rails. It can be frustrating. Uh, one thing I would probably recommend doing is getting something. It, the, the problem is, is you're not gluing up on a flat surface mm. and you might be applying too much clamp pressure. Mm-hmm. Um okay. The way I do it, unless it's a very big panel, I, I'm, I built myself an assembly table uh, probably seven years ago, maybe six years ago. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, it's not dead flat, but it's pretty darn flat. And what I typically do is I actually lay the door panel down on the the workbench itself mm-hmm. or on the, the assembly table, I glue it up and then I put, I don't put the clamps underneath it. I put the clamps on top of it. Um, so you've got the, the panel flat and then the clamps might, and I don't use big high pressure parallel clamps or pipe clamps to do it. I shouldn't have to apply that much pressure to close those joints. I'm just using medium-duty F-clamps. Sure. And I'll put them on the side, and I'll lay them down on the table. And I'll tighten them down. I cl- Just close up the joints. You don't have to apply a ton of pressure. It's unnecessary. Let the glue do its job. And when you get done looking at it, make sure that your panel is still flat on your assembly table. Uh, and leave it there. I know that sounds crazy, uh, but but I've done glue ups for panels where I even haven't even used clamps. I just use tape, mm, sure, to, okay. to tape the joints together. So clamping, anytime you clamp something, it adds pressure to it and stress, and that can move stuff around. So that's the thing to really be careful of, especially pipe clamps. When you push those things together, those pipes in the middle between the clamps they do arc yeah um even if it's a little bit but it's enough to throw your panels off so Mm -hmm. brian what do you do i do all of the wrong things and i (laughs) am appreciative of this question because i actually have a door that i need to build next week um just a small cabinet door uh, for a project but i what i've what I've done that I will probably not be doing in the future is I'll set up my parallel clamps on an assembly table that is flat and I'll then uh, lay the door out on top of those parallel clamps and I'll start torquing them down. And Here's the thing. You're assuming that the bars for those clamps are flat. Yeah. Do not assume. That's the biggest problem people have with them is they assume those clamps are the, the clamps are straight and flat. They mm-hmm. are not. Yeah. Lay them yeah. down on the table and put the clamp on top of it. Yeah. Just just enough to close a joint. 
Yeah. Yeah. So many of my, so many of the troubles I've had in the past trying to, to build doors are not, not actually milling stock flat. Um, I've only had a joiner for a little over a year, year, well, maybe two years now, but, um, for the several years prior to that, I was just taking stock, running it through the planer and going to cut joiner and all that. And just having a little bit of a bow in any yeah. of those parts or any, any sort of twist is going to send your door, you know, it's going to create a really chaotic outcome there. So, so I, I recently built these doors for this China cabinet and they're 12 light divided doors. So, uh, I did my best uh, to try to make sure that this was as flat as possible. Uh, doing the same techniques that you talked about, Guy, is uh, making sure that it's on my assembly table. And, of course, my assembly table is, is pretty flat, but it's not perfectly flat. And uh, even doing that afterwards, taking them out of the clamps afterwards and, and, and seeing how everything, assessing everything, one of the doors just has a little bit of just the very slightest twist to it um, where uh, one corner I think is up by, I don't know, like a couple millimeters, two, three millimeters or whatnot. Uh, ultimately, I'm not w all that worried about it. You know, once it once it gets uh, attached to the hinges, I put in the ball catches and whatnot. You know, when it closes, it's going to flex back. But yeah, I, I've experienced the same issue of like, you know, you, you do everything right and still it just has a little bit of a twist to it, but it, it's almost inevitable. But you, you want to do the things that Guy had talked about to ensure that you mitigate those larger possibilities of twist. Is there a way to, is there a way to fix it when it comes out of the clamps and you realize, hey, I'm, I'm a couple millimeters out of flat? Is there any way to, to remedy that? Yeah, make a new door. <laughs> I mean, it, it dep really depends on what the door is being used for. If, if it's an inset door, it being off a millimeter out of, out of flat causes huge problems. And, and so what do you do? Yeah. You know, you, you start sanding away or filing away material to make it so it's flush with the, 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 the frame that it's going in. Yeah. I, I mean, that's about all you can do, or you can just bite the bullet and make another door, which is, you know, it, it hurts. It really hurts. Um, as far as making a, some type of flat assembly table, what I, what I used to do in the past before I built the assembly table is I had a, and I actually still have it. It's probably 20 years old by now. I've got a piece of melamine that's notoriously flat. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think, maybe three by three, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. somewhere around there. And I've put um, pieces of wood as a frame underneath it so the, the, the long grain is perpendicular to the top. So it, it holds it flat. Mm -hmm. And I used to use that for glue-ups. Yeah. Because so I didn't just, have I didn't I didn't have an assembly table, so I would just throw that thing on my bench, and the the, the doors most doors I had needed to make would fit on that. And yeah, I almost used that for glue up. Almost like a pseudo torsion box underneath. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was, but there was no there was no web frame or anything like that. It was just around the edges. 
Oh, and gotcha. Okay. It it wasn't perfectly flat, but it was it was flat enough. Yeah. Um. So the big thing to to, to watch, Mike, is your uh, clamping clamping forces. Yeah. yeah. And then one, one last one last uh, extra credit comment for Mike here. To you've got it in clamps, and maybe you're clamping it straight on the table, like guys talking about now. Um, one way to check to see if you know. Even if you're unsure, is my table flat enough, and is this door gonna, you know, end up flat when the clamps come off? Might be to use winding sticks on um, both ends of the door, and then get down and sight down the length of the door, and mm. see if see if those winding sticks are remaining parallel to each other. Mm. Would you do that during a dry fit, or would you do that once? Yeah, probably during a dry, probably yeah. during a dry fit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I do it. I do it upon glue up as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Yep. Hui, right. okay. take it away. All right. This question is from Jose. Hello, all. I have taken on a commission from my wife. I don't know if they call those commissions. Uh, <laughs> and have a few questions during my design process. For reference, I am replacing and redesigning a Wyndham wood top kitchen island off white. I think the brand is Threshold from Target is what he's mentioning. The goal is to create more enclosed storage. I need to balance mobility and weight along with stability. The cart or island is used a lot for prepping food when we have company. I would prefer to construct the case out of solid hardwood panels for a sleeker look, but I'm concerned about the overall weight. It appears that the logical solution is to use plywood and create frame and panel walls. As I have never used plywood for things other than drawers and shop furniture, I'm concerned about color matching the plywood and hardwood. Is this a logical concern? I do not own a truck and would likely have to pay $75 for delivery of lumber from the local lumber yard I live in Los Angeles. When I normally purchase hardwood, I have the guys cut them into manageable pieces and fit them into my VW Tiguan, which is a large SUV. Lastly, do you have any ideas for the back wall of the cart? The back panel needs to be attractive as it would often be seen when the cart is moving around the kitchen. Again, plywood seems to be the easiest option, but would require me to order the plywood for delivery. Would a back panel made out of four-quarter material plane down to five-eighths inch create weight distribution issues and risk tipping? Would there be any overall concerns with so much hardwood and seasonal movement? Living in Los Angeles, we don't get seasons, but some days are definitely more humid than others. If I do decide to order plywood, what would be a good thickness to consider? Is three-quarter inch overkill or will half inch suffice thanks for any advice or insight you might you can provide um so the question uh, the first part that the first part that he has concern about is matching the plywood with my guess is like the posts or the legs or the other components that he plans on using hardwood for i've had this concern as well particularly if it's not a painted structure or painted piece in these situations, what I've done is if I decided to use plywood, and I think plywood is a good choice here, is I've actually made my own shop on veneer or purchased commercial grade veneer uh, that was the same species as the, uh, as the hardwood that I'm using for the rest of the piece. And then I go about dyeing it to the color that I want, and that gives me a little bit more consistent color across the... Uh, manufactured plywood pieces and the hardwood. Uh, so consider that. 
I probably would use plywood in this case because it, I think it would make the construction a little bit easier. Uh, you wouldn't have to really account all that much for, for wood movement. Um, and then in terms of thickness, I would say that the outside parts of this cart would, I'd probably want them to be three quarter inch thick. Uh, but then the internal parts probably would be fine half inch thick. But honestly, I'm kind of an overkill kind of person. So I would probably make the whole thing out of three quarter inch, all the dividers and vertical structures. And then the back, I would probably make out of either half inch. I, I would probably go half inch thick for the back. Uh, Brian, since we went to Guy first on my question, well, how about you, Brian? What do you think on that? Um, I, I, I like your recommendations for your back panel, Jose, the one that you said is going to be uh, visible uh, to others when the cart's being moved around the kitchen. I would, it might look nice to do um, kind of that slat, slat wood wall panel type look where you end up with, um, you know, inch, inch wide slats or so, and you can make yeah. those as, as thin as you want, um, to, to avoid making it overly heavy. Um, and I think that would look really good on, on the back wall of that. But yeah, we, I, I agree with the recommendations you have, particularly around the three quarter inch plywood. It just, it, it's going to give you more I think, structural integrity than half inch. Um, yeah. half inch has certainly has its applications, but if you're building that case out of, out of the plywood, I would, I would definitely use three quarter inch. Uh, guy, what are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, guys over here getting all antsy about that, uh, that panel. Slat, slat wall. I mean, the, uh, unless you're trying to fall into the restoration hardware trap, stay away from it. Um, respectfully disagree. Uh, yeah, it's 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 the scourge of society. So, <laughs> just like Apple tables. So, um, I've looked at a picture of this Wyndham Wood Top Kitchen Island. Uh, if it, if it were me, I would go solid wood on the legs, maybe like two inch, two and a half inch square on the legs and then embed the panels into the legs and then use, I would use three quarter inch plywood throughout. If you want to have it look good on the back where the back is solid, I would use applied molding to make it look frame and panel on the back. So you've got, and just make it simple. Yeah. Four legs, bottom, back, sides, all let into the legs mm -hmm. using dados. And then mm -hmm. on the back and on the, on the sides, on the bottom and the top, you can take some applied moldings. You don't have to build a full print frame, frame and panel for this. It's mm -hmm. unnecessary. Sure. Um, and then you could take the, uh, an applied molding and put it along the bottoms and the tops. Mm -hmm. So horizontal. it looks like frame and panel. So it looks yeah. like frame and panel. Mm -hmm. And it would be mm -hmm. more than enough. Yeah. And it would be really solid. The legs are, are what's going to make it solid. And, and because that applied back is uh, a plywood, uh, attaching the molding directly to the plywood, it's, it, it shouldn't be any issue. It'd be all, fine. Right? It'll be fine. Yeah, you just don't want to make it like four inches wide, just right, an inch right, and a half, right. two inches wide. Yeah. I'd probably make them the same 
a little bit smaller than the thickness of the leg from a, a design aesthetic. So if you go yeah. two inches on the legs, I'd go maybe an inch and a half on the applied molding on the bottom. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the uh, at the island cart here. It's a, it's a nice island cart. Um, yeah, but there's like three different styles of it, so I don't know. I think yeah. it's the full the full island with the two casters on the one end. And yeah, yeah. Put yeah. the ground on the other. That's a, that that'd be a fun little project. Yeah. And uh, the best piece of advice I can give a Jose is again, do not fall into the restoration hardware trap. <laughs> avoid really like do, avoid, avoid doing anything that restoration hardware does because in two or three years it will be out of style and you won't want it. It's like buying uh, Harvest Gold appliances in the 70s. They looked great in 77, but by 80, nobody wanted them. I got to get on the Google for that one. Yeah, I got, I got, I'm looking. Yeah, you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. Harvest Gold, Harvest Gold Appliances? Harvest Gold Appliances. Oh, appliance. Yeah, with red carpet. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah. Look at that green. Yeah. Yeah. Jose, I stand by my recommendation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, Who's who's next here? Is it? I think I've got the next one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. got it. All right. Um, this one is from Paul Mitchell and Paul writes, hi guys, uh, long time listener. I recently got my first 220 volt table saw. It's a Grizzly 690. Works great. And um, also have uh, a router table, Woodpecker P2. I have a small shop and space is always tight. I'm thinking about buying an Incra table fence with the router attachment as I can put it off to one side as my cut requirements are less than 24 inches. So the ripping capacity, it sounds like less than 24 inches, mainly 12 to 18 inches wide as my happy spaces projects within two feet by four feet. Anything larger than that is handled on my Yeti smart bench, which has a four foot by eight foot cutting capacity. Guy is a big fan of Inker tools, and I just wonder if his opinion, I wonder his opinion on what is best. Should I replace a good table saw fence with the Inker one that was mentioned before in an added router table attachment or keep things separate. What are your opinions? Thanks for helping out and making a quarter effort to help or 200%. <laughs> like the uh, woodworking humor at the end there, Paul. So summarized, Paul has a separate router table and table saw, and he's wondering, should he put the, in a small shop, should he put the two into one single unit with a you know the router table uh, attachment and go with the Incra fence system. So I'll let Guy and we speak to the Incra fence system. I'm not familiar with that, but I've had to wrestle the same question in my own shop lately of should I, in a in my shop's a little under 200 square feet, should I take my router table, which is a standalone unit right now, and should I put that in the wing of my uh, saw stop, uh, cap, PCS cabinet saw? And the I'm deciding to keep mine separate. And the reason for that isn't so much the capacity of the fence, which is a consideration for you, Paul, but it's, I have enough things that I need to store inside the, the cabinet that I have built underneath or around my router table, which is mobile, it's a mobile mm-hmm. router table, that it justified keeping the router table, you know, as its own 
standalone piece. While I would love to have the extra floor space for where I would store all of the bits and the mobility that I even need with my table saw moving around, um, mm-hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to burden that down with you know more cabinetry and uh, fixtures underneath it. So I've kept mine separate. Guy, what do you what do you think about his uh, concept of incorporating the Incra? Incra fence and Incra router table attachment. Um, I have I have mixed feelings. Uh, I really like the Incra fence on my saw. Mm-hmm. I really like the Incra fence on my router table. I did some. I don't know if I want to call it testing, but the way you've got to do it with the the Incra fence on the table saw, and if you incorporate the router lift into the extension is that to really use the router table thing right, you have to pick up the yoke that's the the, 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 the saw fence is attached to and flip it around 180 degrees and then move it towards the extension instead right. of the blade. Mm-hmm. When you do that, it throws everything out of alignment when you put it back on your table saw. Yep. Incra claims that when you put it back on the, when you spin it back around and start using it as a fence again, it'll just magically be perfect again. Absolutely not. It's going to be off. And then you're going to spend a half a day recalibrating it. Don't yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. I don't, if you want to do a separate thing, I understand in a small shop, you have to worry about the footprint of your tools. And if you already got the footprint for the table saw, Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to put, you know, you don't want to have a separate router table. I, I dig that. I would put, still put in the extension, but I don't think the Incra table saw fence is the way to go. Do you, let me ask you this guy, do you have to flip? So you're talking about, um, putting the router table yes. on the extension wing. You have to flip that fence or around. you put it on the. Far right side. You put it on the, you know, if you're facing the table saw, mm-hmm. instead of putting the, or where the infeed is. So instead of putting the router on the, the right-hand side, you put it on the left-hand side, mm-hmm. on the other side of the blade. And then you don't have to flip the thing around, but you do have to slide it over. And right. your, your okay. saw also has to be able to have a router table there because sometimes the motor is on that side. In some cases, the motor bump is on that side and you can't put a router lift underneath that extension. It's got to go on the right side. It can't go on the left side. So, um, yeah, I, I, I me, myself, I, I, a, a router table, you don't have to make this big, huge six foot long router table. Router tables can be very small as far as a per footprint go, you know, maybe two by two. If you need extra, you know, support, you can, you can put extensions on there or, or whatever right. that are removable. But I, I really do prefer a, a separate router table. Okay. As opposed to built in. Okay. Yeah. I'm seeing now. Okay. In, in order. So see, I, I thought you could get the, longer extension longer rails for the incra table saw fence and have the router table on the right side if you're looking at the front of it 
And if it was all the way to the You're right. talking from the feed and it's to yes. the right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I thought that you could put the router table on the right side and you'd have to put basically the whatever that, that carriage is for the Incra. And you have to shift it all the way over to the right in order for that to work. Is that not the case? I guess you could do it that way. But yeah. your router fence is going to be to the right and you're going to be feeding stuff in and you can't really get around the router table because the table saw is in the way. That, that's that's the other thing to consider. You want to be standing in front of your router table right. facing the fence, not to the side. Yep. So doing it that way is, I think, kind of goofy. Yeah, and that's exactly how I have it. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's... It, Admittedly, it's, it's, it is a little It sucks goofy. sometimes, right? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. So uh-huh, because putting, I don't it, have... put it, putting it to the left right, and then standing in front of it or putting it to the right and flipping the table around to push the right. fence going up that way will put you in the right position to use the router table. Yeah, and, that, and that's what I wanted to mention too is because I have mine on the right and I also have my Incra. I have a separate fence from my table saw. I have my Incra Ultra, which is an older... By this point, I think it's like 20 years old. That's also on the right as I'm uh, facing the in-feed side. I don't have access to that, uh, I guess, left side of that router table, right? Like I, I, I've got to finagle it somehow where... Anyway, the point is, is that you'd much rather have access to all three sides of that router table. You want access to the front, you want access to the left, and you want access to the back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I most want the left, right, and front. Yep. Uh, yep. To the router table while I'm using it, uh, and that's that makes that's me a, most comfortable. Yeah, and and that's to do it that way. You would absolutely have to flip. I see what you're saying, guy, and I completely agree. You'd have to flip it, or you put it on the left side of the table saw blade. I think I think we get so wrapped around the axle about footprint size of tools and we've got to do this thing because I don't have the room for it. And it turns into this gymnastics every time you have to use it. Yeah. A a, a router table does not have to take up a lot of space. Two by two. I mean, it's like the footprint of a drill press. Drill presses take up no room. Yeah. It's the same thing. I had designed my router table, which is on the extension wing of on the right side of my table saw on its own set of casters. And then it has leveling feet to come up to the height of the table saw. So I I designed it that way, thinking that in the future, when I don't need the extra space, if that ever happens, uh, where I don't need to have that space savings, I can have the router table as a totally separate thing. And I would prefer that. Yeah. All right. I, I, I hope that helps out a little bit. <laughs> so this last question comes from Jeff. And Jeff asks, could you give an explanation of your general setup and process for finishing regarding the consumables? I feel like I am not very efficient and I'm wasteful during this process. For example, I just finished a shaker end table that I put a seal coat of shellac on and followed with the hard wax oil. It came out looking great, but I feel there is a huge mess to clean up after. Because of the risk of self, because of the risk of oil self-igniting, I laid everything on my garage floor after I was done so it could dry. 
I see that I used eight rubber gloves, a dozen shop towels, Scotch-Brite pads, several Great. sheets of butcher paper, and mixing cup for the oil. Also, can I reuse the mixing cup from the hard wax oil, and how would you clean out the leftover mix? Thanks for the great podcast. Jeff, I'd like to give you some advice on the wax, hard wax oil. I've never used it, so I don't have any real um, advice to give on that. As far as the consumables, they're consumables. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like sandpaper. You 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 use it, and when it doesn't cut anymore, you throw it out. The the the. I have a specific drawer in my shop. Like I've got specific drawers for everything, but I have a specific drawer in my shop where I have all my finishing consumables. So all my rags are in there. I've got a, a bunch of shop towels. I've got microfiber cloths. I've got rubber gloves. I've got wax paper. I've got all that kind of stuff in one spot. So. I can look at it real quick. And if I know I have a project coming up that I'm going to be doing this certain type of finishing, I just open up that drawer and make sure I have everything. Yeah. And then I'll order what I need or pick it up at the, 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 the hardware store or whatever. But um, yeah, you're going to use, you're going to use gloves. You're going to use all this stuff. It, it, it's, and they are consumables. There's really no good way to not use them. You're going to use them. Um, Try to get the most life out of certain things like Scotch Bright pads. Those things can take a beating. Yeah, they can. Um, before they start to fall apart. But myself, unless I'm using, uh, if I'm touching acetone or alcohol, then I use rubber gloves. But for like the rest of the time, I'm really not using rubber gloves because I don't stain that or dye that much. Um, so I'm really not worried about that. I may go through a, a I, I bought a box of rubber gloves two years ago and it's still almost full. Hui, what about you? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going, I, I, I really don't use that many rubber gloves. Uh, I don't use what about it during the rest of the stuff. I mean, so, so those cups, I mean, that, I'm not gonna wash that out. Like I, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I, they're they're disposable cups. I know it's it's extraordinarily wasteful, but I just don't see the benefit of uh, for me to to save it. Uh, popsicle sticks. I use a ton of popsicle. You know those acid brushes. Yeah. Those are like those are like completely like after you use it once, you can't use them. Yeah. Who cares? Throw it out. Yeah. Yeah. Throw them out. Um, I know, again, it just seems like really wasteful, but eight, that does seem like a lot. Eight pairs eight of rubber pairs gloves. gloves a lot, yeah. that, that, that's a lot. Um, uh, uh, let me ask you this. When you're spraying shellac, what, mm -hmm. what kind of PPE are you using to, to, to spray shellac? Uh, I, I usually wear a, a face mask. That's it. Respirator glasses. And you always wear glasses, so respirator glasses, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't use... Denatured alcohol doesn't affect me. Uh, yeah, I'm always and shellac is just you know bug droppings, right? So yeah, for the most uh, part, yeah. So I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not concerned with that. I I don't think you need to be Jeff. I mean that's up to you, but uh, I don't use rubber gloves when I'm spraying shellac, and the only thing I've got is a respirator and and, and eye protection. 
the hard wax oil, I feel the same way. I've used it before. It's 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 not it's non toxic. It's it's not gonna you know not gonna leach into your skin or anything like that. Kind of smells nice. I like it. Um, but uh, you know you couldn't wear gloves with that. But you really don't need to. Um, you need I, I to dry out. Do you need to dry out the rags when you use that stuff? Man, those rags, I I dip them in water and I toss them out. I, I don't reuse those wet rags. Well, because yeah, they're... I know you can't reuse them, but I, I know like when I'm doing um, a Danish oil finish, I mostly use paper towels. Yeah, yeah. And when I get done with it, I unfold them and I set them over something so they dry because you mm -hmm. don't want to bunch them up and throw them in the can when they're wet. hundred percent. Yeah, I, I know about that. Um, yeah, so. That's happened to me before. I just I just leave them set out. Yep. I mm -hmm. usually put them over my sawhorse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, let's see the mixing cups. I mean, that's those Scotch Bright pads. I, I I buy the synthetic ones. You know what I'm talking about? The synthetic pads, the Scott, whatever they are. Um, but I get them from like Granger or McMaster Car, and I get a huge pack of them, and they last a long time. Uh, I can use them over again. In fact, actually, the uh, the furniture paste wax that I have has the same Scotch Bright pad that I think when I opened up the can, it's the same pad. Just for applications and whatnot. But, All right, what, 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 let's bring Brian into the conversation. He's sitting there just listening to us. <laughs> taking, taking notes over here. Um, I I use almost exclusively shellac and armor seal to finish my projects, the type of things that, that I do. So I keep a set of rubber gloves for shellac and a set of rubber gloves for the armor seal. And I'm generally able to get you know, two or three projects out of out of them before they they feel gross and need to be you know thrown away. Okay. Um, and then I we actually take our kids put holes in socks like they're going out of style. So <laughs> I will actually we'll we'll put them in the wash one more time after after they've worn them for you know for the final time and the holes have appeared. But I actually keep a just a grocery bag full of old socks with holes in them and use that a lot in, in applying finish. Um, and I'll always finish it with a kind of, a, cause I'll, I'll do the wipe on wipe off with the armor seal. Sure. And I'll, and I'll finish it with paper towel. But as far as the application, I, I found I get better results with an old sock rather than a, a paper towel. So, um, and then the other, I'm just going through seeing all the things that, Jeff had mentioned he uses in the course of doing that. Uh, instead of butcher paper, I have a like an 18 inch by 30 inch uh, piece of half inch pre-finished plywood. Mm -hmm. And I actually just throw that up on my bench or my assembly table and finish on top of that um, on the pre-finished side of it. And it's easy enough to, to, to scrape back if it starts really gumming up, but um, that's how I protect my surface and then I just toss it in the closet when, when I'm done with it. Um, and it saves on waste and uh, some of the mess. And then maybe the last would be uh, just small little plastic like bathroom cups that I, it, and again, I'm usually doing yeah. smaller projects, um, boxes and crosses and just little knickknacky type things. Uh, I don't, I'll use something bigger if I'm finishing it at side table or coffee table or larger project, but I'll just use those little bathroom plastic bathroom cups and I'll, I'll dip one into my container, uh, 
to whether it's shellac or armor seal, I'll dip it in and then I'll then pour it into a second one and um, then nest it all into a third. So I'll go through three at a time, but it keeps keeps my can clean and keeps it from getting all over the side of the cup and everything like that. And you can get a hundred of them for like a dollar. So um, those are those are my those are my cheap hacks for yeah for sure. what that's worth. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for the questions. What do we got going on in the shop, Brian? Uh, I don't know. A, a lot of knickknacky things. I'm making a little tea light candle holder uh, gift for um, my mom. Shh, Dad, if you're listening, don't tell her. Um, and that's, <laughs> and that's, been, that's been kind of a fun. I don't know. I've been in been in a bit of a, a shop slump lately with the finger injury and some other things. I haven't found a lot of time in here and I've got some cutting boards that I made with leftover just cutoffs that I needed to get out of here that have been sitting unfinished for two months. I'm trying to get those finished and just out of here so I can get focused back on a client project I'm working on. So just a little bit of everything. What about, what about you? We, Oh man. Um, it's baby time. Uh, my wife is at 39 weeks. So the last two weeks, all we've been doing is, uh, have, you, have you guys heard of this term nesting? Have you? Are you oh, yeah. 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 So, so yeah. So, uh, I had to buy a third car seat so that we could fit the infant carrier in two car seats in the back of my car. Um, and then we had to rearrange anyway, I've been, I got baby on the mind. I hadn't been yeah. doing much in the shop. One thing that I did do, and I feel like an idiot for this, um, is I bought the Veritas uh, shooting board track. Okay. And I got, and I got the 24-incher. And I got the 24-incher, and I'm like, oh, man, this is too long. 24 inches for shooting track is too long. But I also bought the uh, Veritas shooting board fence. And so I was like, yeah, let me, let me get the 16. Well, here's the thing. The reason why they sell the 24-inch fence or the shooting board track is because a lot of people buy that along with the shooting board fence. And in order for those two things to work together properly, you kind of need that extra length because it, anyway, the way the fence is oriented. Well, I returned the 24 inch one and reordered the 16 inch one, got the 16 inch one in. I was starting to build the shooting board and I was like, Oh, that's why I needed the 24-inch one. So then I returned the 16-inch one and had to reorder the 24-inch one. I'm sure Veritas loves me right now. It's, but I, I highly doubt they care. But the point is, is that I ordered something that was right, thought it was wrong, reordered something that was wrong, returned that and reordered the thing that was supposed to be right. So that was fun. Um, anyway, that's all I got going on in the shop. Guy, what do you got going on, man? In the, in the shop, not much. I, last weekend, I... I finally hung the uh, cabinets in my laundry room that I had made. Oh, the painted white oak cabinets. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're not white oak. Oh, well. Oh, I thought, yeah. Never mind. Sorry. Distraction. Yeah. It, it was white oak plywood. Um, I guess it was white oak. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I hung those and that's about it. So, uh, Anyways, I think that's going to do it for the show. And we'd like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And, of course, we truly appreciate your support and feedback. 
So please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from you, the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can be found on Guy's Woodshop or Guy's Shop on uh, YouTube. What about you, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my socials are there. And Brian. I do not exist on regular social media, but I do have a page on simplecove.com at Brian Schmidt. All right. Very nice. Very good. And uh, I guess we'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Talk to you in a couple. See you. See you. All right. Bye.